And we are live with our 222nd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on X, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on X. Says say hi. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Um, we are a little bit shifted this week and last week, just uh, due to life and other things that are going on. But we're super excited to have. Um, uh, guest of the podcast, come back on. Leaf, come back on after a number of years. Uh, we were we were looking at re- you know past episodes and realized it had been three years since last time we talked to Leaf, and so there's a lot to catch up on. Um, before we get to that, as far as announcements go, Ken and I will be at LastCon later this week. We'll be doing a an episode of the podcast live, um, state of AppSec right? Or state of absolute AppSec, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, On stage on Friday, uh, it'll be a panel. Uh, We're going to do our best to stream it out live. If we can't get it out, get it streamed um, during the conference, then we will post it later. Um, On top of that... um, Who's on uh, the panel? Who's on the panel? Uh, Yeah, what celebs do you have on the panel? (laughs) Um, I have a couple people I'm trying to... Yeah. <laughs> no, I have a couple people I'm trying to I'm trying to lock down, but we haven't solidified 100%. So, what, keeping it a little bit topic? of a surprise. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to post that, no. right? Like it it'll solidify here in the next couple of days though. Um it's been more Yeah, the topic Go ahead, Ken. Sorry. I'm having like some weird latency, I think. Uh sorry. <laughs> Anyways, last time we did this, by the way, 3 years ago, the uh like I, my screen was completely like crapping out. I had to switch locations. Oh, so yeah. just, apropos that, of course, it's happening <laughs> again. Um, no, no, no. I was just going to say, sort of, sort of a. The last time we we did this, we sort of got a take from everybody on on you know what's brought us to this point. What can we improve improve on? And you know, wh- where do we think things are going? A lot of ideation. Um, just kind of looking for creative solutions, things like that. So we'll walk through a lot of that kind of stuff. Just the 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 general appsec world. Yeah. I mean, Matt Johansson's in Austin. Could maybe get him on if you want to allow a vendor shill. Uh, Evan <laughs> Johnson has started a company. He's in Austin. So could, yeah. could potentially pull those guys on there. Yeah. Yeah. We had Evan on not too long ago talking about Run Reveal and what he's doing over there. So it's uh, an interesting, interesting use case, right? Um, seems to be fairly effective. Uh yeah, but I, I mean, outside of that, uh, Ken will be at AppSec USA next week. Sadly, I'm not going to make that. Um, I'll be there too. Nope, you will be oh, as well. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, yep. and we're uh, SimGrips hosting a party with a few other vendors, um, including like Impart Security and Pangea. So uh, that's Sunday night. Nice. We had Brian Joe on from Impart Security sometime back actually as a matter of fact so it's a uh, i think right was it yep. am i crazy yep. nope you're not yeah you're right That's i can send the i could send the link um if you want to add it to the show notes sure yeah heck yeah actually i'd like to sign up for that and register and show up yeah. too it'd be fun sign up so, so you want to pull off yeah what's that 
So yeah, do you want me to hold off on posting it then until you are actually like available, right? Or oh, so I can up? make it. So you can make oh, it fine. before it, you know. It's fine. It's fine. Thank you. Cause cause a run on the happy air hour. No, that's awesome, dude. No, yeah, I'll see you then. It'll be nice to catch up in person for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Doing booth cool. duties though, so should be. Yeah, I don't know, like duty as well. I don't know how you feel about that, but like, um, so here's, I, I'll just put it out there. And then if uh, any of this sounds familiar, tag along and you can not be the bad guy. But for me, like I, of course, I like talking about our product. Of course, I like meeting people, but eight straight hours is very, very taxing. It's very, very difficult, uh, especially you're mostly on your feet the entire time. So while, you know, I look forward to talking to some folks and uh, all that, it's, it's, I know it's going to be exhausting. Um, yeah but maybe for you it's we're, not as... we're a bigger company so we we don't have to do a full eight hour shift i do like a half day each day which is a lot more manageable <laughs> much more manageable that's awesome yeah. that's that's a that, that that's the way to do it that's a smart way to do it no we've got we we yeah i'm sure we'll break it up but uh it's just yeah it's long days but uh yeah it should be a good time to catch up with people it's uh cold just you know where are you at now fit like physical location I'm in New York, so about the same as DC, weather-wise. That's fair. Yeah. Well, yeah. Keep a jacket, uh, Seth. No, you don't no have to worry about it. <laughs> I miss AppSec Galley. Are they not doing that anymore? Yeah, it it died during COVID. And there's is there are there any rumblings of it coming back or just it's it's over? Um, yeah, I think it's over. I mean, I think it is like a revivable idea, but you'd need to get people on board with all the effort that goes into putting a conference on, which is quite a lot. But I think there's still a, a market for it, for sure. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to see like which conferences have kind of, you know, faded away or which, you know, brands of them, um, is, you know, post-COVID and... I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't know, right? Like, there's still quite a bit of activity. I mean, from the hacker tracker stuff, we still see quite a few B sides events and other things. But there, there has been a shift in different places. It, uh, you know, there haven't been as many conferences, um, especially focused like like on AppSec um, or you know some of the uh, what more focused conferences, I guess I should say, but. We'll see if it, it comes back. I, I mean, I feel like there's a definite need there. Um, I think Global AppSec next year, isn't there a San Francisco edition? I believe there is. Yeah, they're, they're, they just bought back and forth between SF and DC. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, at least that one will be coming back, but I still miss the, the nice January, February uh, visit to uh, California. Yeah, it has some of the best weather in the country during that time of year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Annandale Beach House is a terrible place to hang out when it's... Uh, terrible. Yeah. There Super is also nice. some some organizer global OWASP beef that I'm not going to get into, but that was also like a contributing factor that led to it not making a comeback. Yeah. No, there's no drama in OWASP. Everybody gets along well, you know, no no issues there. Now, yeah, we've seen a lot of it uh, the last year. I feel like it's it's, it's been even more dramatic, by the way. Uh, but 
Yeah. So I, I did want to kind of get into, by the way, it's been three years. Um, lots obviously happened during that time when, cause we were talking about it just before we hopped on. So you were an individual contributor, uh, at that point later you took on, um, a engineering manager role. You all were acquired segment was acquired by Twilio. And then since then, obviously you've moved on to uh SEMGREP as well. So yeah, just, I, I guess like, you know, at the, at the last point at which we kind of caught up with you, if you could just like start walking us through what all has really like, you know, what was the, what was first, let's just start with the IC to EM transition and then maybe we <laughs> yeah. can go into the acquisition bits. I'm sure if there's anything you wanted to share at all there. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll rewind a little bit just because I think you were probably the only person that went back and re-listened to the other episode. <laughs> I assume the the listeners haven't and uh, either didn't listen originally or have forgotten in the last three years, but um, yeah, so I originally joined Segment in 2017. Uh, I was a pretty early person to join the security team just in general, and it was mostly focused on application security. So doing bug bounty stuff, pen testing, um, fixing some some volumes in the app, uh, doing training, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I got more interested in actually helping build out security features. Um, but at the time, there was no team that was specifically tasked with doing this. So I was mostly just partnering with other teams and helping them build it. So helped build out um, multi-factor authentication, um, also helped build out SCIM, which is something that sits on top of single sign-on and allows you to do management of like groups and adding people and removing people to the app. Uh, it's a very, very useful thing to add if you're a B2B SaaS app. Um, and then I had kind of helped enough teams like build stuff that uh, it was like, well, there's enough area of ownership now that you could just like create a team and just kind of take back all the stuff that you've helped add and like make enhancements and like go do other things. So. Um, we did a lot of authentication related work, but we also did some pretty cool work around API keys. So we, um, in addition to getting onboarded with the GitHub secret scanning um, thing to detect uh, segment API keys in, in public repos, um, we also built some stuff actually on top of segment itself to show the last time an API key was used. I found that's something that a lot of apps don't do that's really helpful. Um, and then we also uh, have some stuff in there that has like, oh, this was like who it was created by. Um, and then if it's if it's exposed, not only will we send you an email saying like, hey, we detected this on on GitHub or GitLab, but we'll also uh, revoke it and that kind of stuff. It's funny you mentioned that. Actually, I had a situation about a month, uh, specifically the API key usage. I did have a within, I don't know, we'll say the last four weeks, I had a situation just like that where I was like, I couldn't find out when it was last used. And I'm like, I really need to know when this is last used. Not from a security perspective, it was like kind of kind of troubleshooting. But yeah, kind of strange that that didn't exist. But cool. So you got, it's you got, like so basically, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's like not the easiest thing to build. Like it's a very obvious thing to build, I think, but it actually like, we had to put in some actual engineering thought to like how you actually build it. It's not as simple as like keeping track in a database or something every time the key gets used. Because if you did that, you'd just be updating the database a ton when somebody makes like 120 calls in a minute or something like that. It's like, you don't actually need to update all of those. So what we would do is we would write it to segment itself using a segment tracking event that was like hey this api got used 
And then once a day, we'd go back and see which API keys had been used and then use that to update. We didn't actually update on every single use. It was just like, hey, it was used yesterday or it was used you know, two days ago or five days ago. Um, but you would need something like a, like a, you could write it probably to like Redis or something like that too, like something that's just out of the, the path. And it's not like an insane undertaking, but it's, I think it is something that's, you know, when you're building the API, if you don't think about doing it, it gets harder to add later because then what do you tell customers about the usage? You're like, oh, it's actually unknown usage because we weren't always tracking this and stuff. And so I think it's a little bit more complicated than people think, but yeah, it, it is something that would be nice. Especially it's when kind of something we talk gets leaked and you're like, oh, are we actually using this thing? Do we need to actually go figure out where it was used or like, oh, this thing, you know, was part of, uh, you know, a CI provider breach, but we haven't actually used this token in like two years. So like we don't need to figure out where it's used and roll it and that kind of stuff. Not easy, but very, very, very useful. And it probably opened your eyes. And actually, you talked about this a little bit the last time, how you had a realization like, uh, you, you were kind of saying, you know, things that you thought were simple tweaks, simple updates, simple fixes, as you had gotten into more and more engineering and, and to put something into, you know, production, you're like, oh, no, it's it's actually a lot of work that goes behind and a lot of factors to consider when you're when you're making those tweaks or those little fixes. They're not nothing's ever. You actually said that you had an engineer who said who always repeated no fixes a very uh, is a small fix. Yeah, yeah it's never a quick fix. Even never, if you have yeah. like, yeah, even if you have a good engineering culture and you have like fast CI and like, you know, maybe you even have like, it's easy to spin up development environments. Like that's one thing that's really nice at SEMgrep is like, it's really, you can create a dev stack super easily. But it's like, even if you have all those things, like it still takes time just to put up the PR, get it reviewed, answer questions, like make sure it works. Like even something that's quick, uh, you know, is is probably an interruptible half day at minimum, um, unless it's something that's like urgent and you can just be like, I need you to look at this right now and like get it out there. For you, is that kind of the metric for like what a product security person is? Is like building in sort of security tooling and security products. We, I'm asking because we've had um, we've had that question a bunch of times in our Slack and on our our chats, and we've gotten various you know different answers from different people as to what they consider prodsec versus mm -hmm. appsec. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you had gained any insights as an IC and EM uh, in that role that kind of left I don't, some I don't opinions know what there. the answer is, honestly. Like we originally had at, at segment, um, we originally had the definition of like, okay, product security is like actually building security features in the product mostly because we were friends with y'all at GitHub and that's the name that you used and we just stole it. And then we had AppSec, which was kind of the more like, I would say traditional definition. Like, I don't think there's a lot of debate on what the definition of AppSec is. You know, it's like- neither. Comparative, com com comparative, <laughs> comparatively to product security. Like yeah. there's way more, there's way more debate on like what is ProdSec than like what is AppSec, at least in my experience. And so we had like, a, I would say a pretty traditional definition of like what AppSec is up to. Um, I actually soured on that name though, for using product security, because I found that when it was time to do recruiting, I would get a bunch of consultants that, you know, had never written any production code before. Like they were, 
basically looking for an AppSec role. And I don't really blame them. I mean, there's tons of companies that like use product and AppSec like pretty interchangeably, but it really yeah. made like attracting the right types of people to apply pretty difficult. And so after the first person I hired for the team, I swapped to just posting like security software engineer and no. the results were a lot better. And like, I don't know that it really matters like what you call the team internally um as long as it's descriptive and people know what you do but um i, I felt like in terms of the t the role title uh security software engineer was a much better fit than product security engineer so expanding on that i mean what were some of the qualifications you were looking for in folks that did that uh, or that filled that role so I wasn't willing to compromise on the engineering side. Like you needed to be somebody that could write code and like had written code and like ideally the languages that we were using at segment, which is full stack TypeScript, um, was willing to compromise on that, like for the right candidate. Um, but they had to be interested in security. I didn't actually care if they had actually worked on security features before. Obviously it was a huge plus if you're somebody who had built SSO before, built MFA before, had done like a lot of identity work or, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that good software engineers are smart and it's like, you can teach them this stuff. Like software engineers build stuff that they've never built before all the time. Like, you're never going to find somebody who's like, oh yeah, yeah, we need somebody who's built this exact thing. Um, and so I kind of just took that approach when I was hiring. It's like interested in security, but like strong background in software engineering. Mm -hmm. that I mean, it's interesting that that was the that was the reaction, right? Because um, I, I mean, we we've always said, or we said for a number of years that the best, you know, product security or even appsec, you know, engineers come from a software background, um, and it might just be a mindset thing. It doesn't mean that we don't get a lot of talented people from other avenues, uh, but definitely in in roles where you're looking to build security into a a product right like i i don't think i would look specifically at appsec first for that role right i'd probably be looking at software engineers or people to transition into it um, yeah i mean yeah. we were building features of the production segment product like, yeah and they're features that are really really important to get right like if you mess up you know your scim implementation it could be very, very bad in terms of giving people access to stuff that they shouldn't. Yep. And so I really think that it's important to have talented software engineers on that kind of stuff. Even if I was hiring for, you know, a traditional AppSec team, I don't know that I would hire anybody who can't at least write a simple script. Like I wouldn't expect them to write production quality code, but if you can't, you know, call the SEMgrep API get the findings out and like put it into snowflake or something like that um you know unless it's like a, a super entry level like position i just think that there's so many things that you can make faster through automation um and it doesn't matter if you're like a super good coder like if you're asking chat gpt to help you with this stuff but you can go through and figure it out and write tests and you know, deploy it and like get it working. I think that that's like a totally fine bar. But yeah, I, I do think that for like the technical roles within security, like you're just at such a disadvantage if you can't put together like basic stuff. And it's like, maybe that doesn't apply if you're like a manager or like, you know, there's some other like niche role 
that it doesn't apply to, that's totally fine. But um, yeah, I do think if you're like an AppSec or a CloudSec person, like you got to be able to do at least yeah. some like basics. Yeah. And I mean, we've, that's been a discussion point multiple times, right, Ken? Um, like what level of code coding is required to be in application security? We've always said it's, it's, you know, if you're trying to do anything in the AppSec space and you don't know how to read, read code, that's probably the first thing you'll want to do is, you know, brush up on that. Because um, otherwise we just don't know what people are actually going. I, I just don't know what you would you would do, right? Um, I guess you could run Burp Suite a little bit with, I, I don't know, right? Like I struggle because it's been such a, I mean, in all of our backgrounds, right? Like that's such a relevant piece of what we use on a daily basis and how we think about the work that we do that I, I don't know how someone, someone could even function without a, at least a baseline understanding of what, what you're talking about, Leaf, right? Like, hey, I, I take this data, I munge it and I do something else with it, right? Um, yeah. I, I Did you see people that were coming into your roles then with that, with, without that experience or applying? Um, there was nobody that made it very far in our process that couldn't do some, like, again, super basics. Like, I'm not expecting you to be like a production quality engineer, but that was something that was part of all the people that reported to Eric, which was CloudSec, AppSec, and ProdSec. Like, part of it was writing some simple code just to make sure that you could do some, like, basic stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, it makes sense. Right. So um, that was your time at Twilio. I, I guess we haven't really talked about your move from, you know, being an ICE into, you know, management, like how, how did that progress? Um, what was the differences in like your day to day? That would be interesting to hear. Like, did yeah. someone ask you to become a manager or yeah. Could, I'm actually, yeah. yeah. Can you also talk about that? Like how did, how did you even, did someone approach you and recruit you for that or what? Yeah. So it was something that Eric, who's been on the show as well, um, had asked about uh, a few different times. And uh, I was like, Hey, I want to keep progressing down the IC path. And then finally to I told him, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to give, give this a shot. Like, I feel like I know enough about security and writing software and, you know, segment as a business and that kind of thing. And it was really a great transition overall because like to start, I just had one person who was reporting to me. And so I was still doing quite a lot of IC work, but also helping this person who had just been promoted from uh, like IC1 to IC2 um, grow as an engineer. And then I was also chartered with building out a team. And so I kind of just gradually, like the more, more time I spent on hiring and like the more people I brought onto the team, the less ic work that i would do and i would still go in and like fix stuff here and there or like you know go in and help people write up a plan to solve something and kind of walk them through the code and be like hey here's like the stuff that you need to change and you know roughly like this is what what you're trying to accomplish and then they'd go in and actually do the work and that kind of stuff so i still felt pretty pretty competent within the segment code base like even when i left and at that point i think i had been a a manager for a little bit over two years. So I thought that was uh, a good way to do it, um, especially because I got to hire everybody on my team too. So I didn't inherit a team at all. I will say that is, I, I feel like if, especially if 
I don't know, it's, it's for everybody. It's a huge benefit if you can just hand select, hand pick the team versus um, what you said, which is coming in later. And then you don't know what dynamics already existed. I mean, you, you sometimes hear horror stories about you know, stuff that you kind of have to deal with because, you know, there's just, someone moved on. They didn't really deal with those issues, team dynamics, but yeah, when you, I mean, that's a really awesome, especially, especially though, if you're newer to the transition, yeah. great way to, to do it. Just really helpful to have all the context of being an IC at the same company, like a lot, pretty much everything that my team owned was something that I had helped build. And so that was really nice for me because I could focus on more of like the people aspects of being a manager. And I didn't, have to try to understand the context of segment as a business or like the stuff that we owned within segment. Like I had already been there for three years. I was already pretty, you know, well connected within the the company. And then when people had questions or I was onboarding somebody new, I could come up with like, Hey, like, let's actually walk through this stuff together. And like, you can take notes and kind of come up with a plan to do some of these onboarding tasks and felt like I was able to review the design docs and be like, Hey, like maybe we should change this up a little bit or like what, uh, you know, could you explain this part? Like it's unclear to me. And I didn't feel like I was really bogging anyone down by having them explain a bunch of stuff. Like they could usually pretty quickly get me up to speed because I was already familiar with enough of the things in our domain. So I think that was really helpful for me personally. Um, I think now at this point that I've been a manager for a while, I I think I would be fine, like going to another company and just, uh, like not being an IC first and like not being super familiar with the code base. Um, but yeah, for the first time, I mean, it was really, really helpful to be able to have that background. Yeah, no. And I mean, you know, like during that process, did you learn, uh, yeah, I mean, did you did you kind of what's your thoughts on EM versus IC? Is basically where where, where I'm going. Like for for you, not like for everybody, but what was your yeah. experience? Like, do you have a preference, or is it just more of a pros and cons situation? Both equally have their role or like value for you. Yeah, I mean, I really like being an IC. I mean, I've had a lot of fun actually building stuff, and like I think the reward of solving problems with code is pretty high for me. But the thing that was great about being an EM at uh, segment was there was a bunch of things that we had been talking about some literally for years that we just never had time to do. And so once I hired a handful of people, like there was a ton of people to work on stuff. And I, you know, mostly knew what they needed to be working on, I could help them work on it. If they had questions, I could review pull requests and things like that. Um, and so it was great getting to help all these people get onboarded to a company that I was already pretty familiar with mm-hmm. and have them execute on stuff that had been an, a known good idea for a while. It just hadn't been uh, above the cut line any time that we went to go and work on it. Okay. Makes sense, right? Like, um, Yeah. It's a... It's a it's a fine line to walk, right? Like, um, and it takes some, some talent to move between those positions. Um, so like doing that at, you know, Twilio and then, you know, moving over to segment now, right. Um, what is, how, whoa, 
Yeah, sorry about that. Right? Segment like, and SEMGREP are, are way Wait, too Really similar. close. Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant to SEMGREP, right? Um, and SEMGREP, you know, you know, Ken and I talk about it quite a bit, right? Uh, but um, we recommend it all the time. Yes, exactly. But like, what what has that been? Like, what is your position over at SEMGREP? How has that been? I know SEMGREP has grown quite a bit. Like when we look at uh, Clint yeah. and Tanya and everybody else that's kind of starting to aggregate around that company. Um, what is it that you're doing over there? How was that transition? What spurred it for you? Yeah, so there was a combination of things. Um, I had been at Segment for about five and a half years, which is pretty good run. Mm -hmm. um, and two and a half of those were post Twilio acquisition. And I was just ready to kind of go to a smaller company where I could just get stuff done faster and um, some grip. It's about the same stage as segment when I joined. Um, it's a little bit earlier, but not a not a ton. Um, and I just know that that for me personally is a really fun time to be at a company like slightly after Series C. Like you obviously have customers that um, you know really love your product at that point, um, but it's also still early enough to have a meaningful impact on the company. Whereas at a company the size of Twilio, as an engineering manager, like there's I don't even know how many engineering managers there are. There's probably like 500 of them or maybe not that many, maybe 250 of them or something. Whereas at uh, SEMGREP, you know, there's like four of us or five of us or, you know, six or something like that. So um, you can just like have such a big impact on the trajectory of the company. And so I was being pretty uh, like thoughtful with where I invested time in terms of like research and interviewing. I wasn't interviewing at, at, at too many places. Um, but one of the other ones I was interviewing at the time is Pangea, who I mentioned earlier with the, we're co-sponsoring a party with them. They're doing some really cool stuff in the product security space using the uh, GitHub segment definition of product security. They're basically trying to be your outsourced security features. Um, and so they have like auth N, auth Z, audit logging, secure file upload, like all that stuff. Like they're just trying to make it so that if you're building a SaaS app, like all that stuff is is turnkey. Um, Calm down, Seth. I can see yep, the excitement yeah. in your ears. But yeah, that and SEMGREP were like the, the two that I was looking at. And uh, I just love SEMGREP's relationship with the community. Like anytime that you're at a conference, like there are so many people that come by the booth and are like we love SEMGREP, you know we use it like even if they're not a paying customer they're just using the open source one like they always want to come by and talk to us and hear what we're up to and get swag and you'll look over at the other companies and there's like <laughs> nobody there they're like begging people to come and talk to them and i feel like there's very few security companies that the community actually really really likes and so when i had the chance to to join one of them that was uh something that was was pretty important to me as somebody who's done a lot of conference organizing and meetup organizing and stuff like i really appreciate uh the community's sentiment towards uh SEMGREP and the, you know it's solving a real problem uh there's a lot of stuff that uh or a lot of companies that that can use SEMGREP to help improve their security is it is it accurate that i i had heard this through the 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 grapevine that uh was it was it two like two guys from MIT basically, uh, or maybe a few from from MIT Three. who 
three yeah so but i think that they originally started off with a, i don't even know what the i i, I forget anyways what the original product idea was it took them a little while to kind of which man i see how that goes uh where you kind of like uh test the waters kind of find your and then you're like boom this is the thing we're going to build and it um if i'm so is that is that accurate? It sounded like like they started off on yeah. a different direction and pivoted kind of to to this, and this is what they landed on. And people, I mean, I know this is useful because we recommended in our co course, we recommended on here. Yeah, yeah, it's honestly a very similar story to Segment, which is kind of crazy because it's in both cases, it's three guys from MIT who had a couple of like pivots and then ended up landing on something that. Uh, has been pretty successful so far. So yeah, that's definitely true for, for SEMGRUB. What's neat about it, I think personally, I don't, I can't speak for the community, but I think one thing that it makes and I really, uh, to, to date, it's been pretty hard to, uh, like obviously customize. First of all, you're, you got the vendor lock-in thing. And so like customizing their tools, you're locked into their tools. And if you want to write rules, it's kind of onerous if you can even get it what you need supported supported and all this stuff and then SEMGRAP comes along like hey you know these this is a huge list of languages we support we just part you know we we don't it's not just like regex i mean there's some ast parsing going on um and it allows you to like quickly you know find something that find a language that you're supported with and then like go build a rule you have a playground there's existing community rules just, I don't know. I feel like it's really empowered people to just kind of build their own, not really a SaaS, but kind of, I mean, honestly, yeah, a SaaS, SaaS dish. I mean, pretty good SaaS product, you know, for, for yeah. themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that most people do it is they go and look at the rules that exist and adapt them until they get good enough to like write a rule from scratch. But yeah, it's great for doing custom stuff that might only be applicable to your org. Like, let's say that you're migrating from, one thing to do authorization to another thing to do authorization you could write a semgrep rule pretty easily for your language that's like hey we see that you're using this old auth z library uh you're supposed to be writing everything in this new one um go do that or like hey we saw that you created a route in flask that doesn't have an auth z check like you need to either have a comment saying like why you don't have that or you need to, to have one um and stuff like that's going to be custom to every every organization. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah, like that's a hundred percent true. Well, like yeah. every you guys have all worked. I mean, you guys have all worked, you know, in a plethora of different spots where it's like, yeah, every app is different, and you do need to customize quickly. And that's why that's where I was kind of saying, like, it's just hard to do that with existing vendor tools, and you're limited in what they support and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. really. Sorry, Seth, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say it takes me back to the old days of what, O2 for ounce and some of the fortify rules that you can write, but it was so difficult to do, right? Like just the understanding of how the product function was 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 such a piece of, hey, now I'm going to customize it that no one ever would, right? As opposed to, oh, like that, that it's kind of a natural progression with SEMGREP is you, you, you know, you drop out of the, the rules that are available pretty quickly when you start talking about custom apps that you've written and what you want to enforce, but it's so easy to go in and play at the playground and everything else. I, there's a reason why we're so high on it. Right. And I think leaf to your point, there's a reason why the community has jumped on it so much is because it is so flexible and it feels like the old, uh, you know, almost, you know, hacker style app that you can use to really 
built something unique for your your specific environment right um yeah so it, it, it it's it's super approachable anyway yeah you were so i i did want to like go back though so so when you when you chose to join, did you have in mind with them like a specific thing that you're joining to build? Or was it sort of more of just like you're in the right place as a company? Uh, people are supporting you culturally. Um, obviously, there's traction here and I can still have like a, a it's the golden uh, the, uh, the, the golden kind of time where I still I, I get to make impactful changes. But on top of that, was there anything like you're like, oh, yeah, like I definitely want to go here for a specific reason? Yeah, I'd say it was a combination of both. Like one of the things that I appreciated is the fact that they are in, encouraging for, you know, if I want to spend time writing a blog or like speaking at a conference or helping one of our founders put together a dinner. Like one of our founders was in New York last week and they're like, hey, you know, a bunch of people like invite people that are smart and fun to hang out with to a dinner. And I like being able to do a bunch of that stuff. Whereas, you know, at a bigger company, they might want you to be a little bit more focused on like just doing whatever the like em description is um and then in terms of like what to work on i didn't join to do a specific thing um there were a handful of ideas that uh you know mostly sounded pretty good to me when i when they were talking about like stuff i could work on and then kind of over the first two months um you know as the the company did some more research and kind of talk to me about like what I was interested in, like we landed on something, but yeah, like the first thing I built was an integration with Jira, Linear and Asana. Um, Cause they didn't have that. And that's something that like every security company <laughs> ends up building at some point. Um, and so they were like, yeah, you've, uh, you know, it, you've, you've used these. I had never built one before, but it's like, I've used a lot of security tool. I've seen like what is good and bad uh, with, ticketing integrations and that kind of stuff. So that was like the first like big project I worked on. Um, and then uh, maybe like two and a half months in, they're like, hey, uh, let's let's do a secrets product and we'll have you lead that and like kind of borrow some people from throughout the organization. Cause like there was no secrets team. It was just like me who had just joined like two months ago and had been doing IC work and then just- You gotta assemble the A team. In. Yeah, like Lewis Ardern, who's been a guest on here. I oh, think, pretty sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. he he was kind of like one of the people who originally advocated for a secrets project, like like way before I even joined the company. Um, and so he kind of helped us from like the security research side. He did a lot of the rule writing and like that kind of stuff. And then we got help from people on the program analysis team. So that's like a separate team that actually like writes the SEMREP engine itself. And then I did a decent amount of like the full stack work, but we got help from like a ton of people like throughout the company that all pitched in to do like sometimes they just do like one thing like they just come in and be like oh I, I need you to like write this one piece of this functionality and then there were other people that were kind of on the team for like a couple of months um and then i ended up hiring somebody uh, that i worked with at segment who who joined just under three months ago at this point probably and he's just absolutely killed it so far um I don't know if you've met him, Sal. He gave a, a talk at B-Side San Francisco like two years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, he he's just come in and like done a ton of great work so far. So yeah. May have met Sal. I, I think, sounds familiar. 
Um, yeah, he gave a talk about all the like API stuff that I was talking about earlier. So he was the one who did a lot of that like API work to make it visible to customers about like, uh, you know, when was the last time the thing was used? He worked with the folks at GitHub and GitLab um, to like help them protect the API keys. But um, let me see, so segment blog i can post a blog yeah into the yeah. comments here but yeah this is a blog that sal wrote um earlier this year that kind of walks through all the stuff that we've done on the, the api key side um and then on the secret side we're actually going with like a public beta tomorrow and so if, if people want to sign up uh for the public beta there's a link too um and Someone from the sales team will reach out to you about your your secrets needs. So be warned if you fill out the form. Yeah. <laughs> be warned. <laughs> we're hey, we we're all used to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I posted the the link to the blog that's talking about some grub secrets. Um, what's oh, cool. going on there? So yeah, I I mean, it, it, again. It, feels like a pretty cool like natural progression of what SEMGRIP is doing, recognizing where where the secrets live. Um, and then, I mean, I mean, can you talk more about like what's going on after the fact there? Like what are the, what the other features are that are useful with that um, outside of just like, oh, I see that this is being used as a password mm -hmm. or as a secret, right? What else is it that you're doing there? Yeah, so the thing that's nice about building something like secrets at this point in SEMGRIP's life cycle is there's enough stuff that already exists that it wasn't like we had to start from zero. Like we're, yeah. as you would expect, we're using the SEMGREP engine to, to identify the secrets. Mm -hmm. um, and so we didn't really have to write anything major to be like, oh, we need to identify that something matches this pattern. Like SEMGREP has been able to do that for a really long time. Um, and then you also benefit from any of the semantic rules. So that's actually what SEMGREP stands for, semantic grep as opposed yep. to syntactic grep. And so you can actually follow a variable, you know, moving throughout the code and going into something that looks like a MongoDB connection string or something like that. Like that's the example from the blog, um, which a simple regex might not be able to figure out that it's like, hey, this thing didn't come from a config. It came from just a local variable and then you, put it into a connection string and that's bad. Whereas bringing it in from the environment is fine. Um, but that's still like kind of before, I guess in terms of what happens after, the main thing that we do is the validation. So mm -hmm. a lot of other tools in the secret space do this, um, but we'll actually make an innocuous call to a, an API to see if the secret is actually valid. In a lot of cases, we don't have uh, validation rules for every secret that we have a detection rule for. Um, but we'll call like Slack or, you know, GitHub or whatever, and uh, just see if the, the API key is valid. Because if it's valid, uh, you obviously care a lot more about like, hey, this is my code base. I need to go and see where this is used and rotate it and, you know, do all that stuff. So, um, yeah, that's that's like the main thing that we do like after the fact is, is do cool. the validation. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that was my question because it, uh, you know, from a, again, like you were saying, right, like from, from a rule perspective, um, you know, some of that feels like it's, you know, it, it's stuff that you can write, but the the validation, the ease of use there um, will, I mean, will definitely be, 
be advantageous, right? I, so similar to what GitHub was doing with like some of the, oh, we know that this is a a key for uh, AWS or whatever it is. Like we're going to actually go invalidate it or we're going to, you know, tell someone about it. Um, have you yeah. gone to that level as well? Or is it just like validation of whether or not the key is useful? Yeah. So we don't do any sort of like revocation of the keys because that requires you to actually build an mm-hmm. integration with the whoever creates the key. So we'd actually have to build an integration with Segment, you know, Twilio, Slack, blah, 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 to automatically do that. Um, we just tell our customers like, hey, this this thing is you know, valid or invalid, and then they can go and like take take whatever the, the appropriate action is there. I also think that that probably makes more sense if the key is in a public repo, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of times if it's in a private repo, like I, I, I wouldn't want that to get revoked immediately because the risk is actually, you know, probably okay for at least some period of time versus the downside of actually going and breaking stuff. I think yep. this is kind of like, you know, a, a good security versus headache trade-off where it's like, we don't want to revoke a key that gets committed to a private repo because if it's used for something, it could break something that like actually matters. Like as long as we're actually going and dealing with that quickly, I think that that is, is a good, you know, trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, makes sense. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, want to just code. There we go. Yep. I just wanted to show you, show the viewers real quick an explanation of what you're talking about so instead of like taking a string and looking like grepping for the results of a string and seeing if it matches you know some sort of uh, pattern instead what what uh, leaf is talking about here is you can you can kind of interrogate like hey this is a variable of some kind right and uh so this is astexplorer.net uh for javascript they have this sort of same type of thing for most uh languages and uh, like online editors, so you can play with it. But yeah, just pay, pay some code in there. You can see how it's kind of broken out. This is, you know, sort of like what an abstract, I'm not sort of, and this is what an abstract syntax tree looks like. Um, and you can start doing what he, what uh, Leaf just said, you know, there's uh, there's like convenience libraries that, you know, you can say like, is this variable an expression statement? And if so, or is it being passed into? Does it match this kind of pattern? You know, what's its name? Things like that. Um, so anyways, something something to play with. It's kind of cool to see how it all gets broken down, how code gets broken down into a, into an abstract syntax tree and all its nodes there. Yeah. And I think kind of touching back on one of the things that you mentioned from last time, uh, Ken, of like, there's always like more stuff than that meets the eye when you're thinking about uh, code. That's definitely mm-hmm. super true when building a product too, as I'm sure you're aware as somebody who's building a product as well. But like, a perfect example of this is you might be thinking, well, like, you know, SEMgrep code could detect secrets. Like, you know, why do we need like another secrets like view within SEMgrep? Like a perfect example of this is like, what is the definition of fixed? Like for a SQL injection finding, it probably just means does the default branch for your repo have that finding or not? Whereas for a valid secret, it doesn't matter if the secret is no longer in the code base, deleting the secret doesn't affect the validity of the secret. And so you actually want to have a different definition of what fixed is. Like you either want to see something go from valid to invalid, or you want to say, have the customer say like, hey, I manually rotated this if it's something that doesn't have a validation rule. And so there's just a lot of little like nuanced things that kind of 
add up and add up and add up to the point where you're like, hey, these things are different enough that like, yeah, we can use some of the same building blocks, but we actually need to give people a new way to manage um, like this type of information. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, there's no even for no easy fixes, right? Yeah, there's no easy fixes. It's it's always harder. <laughs> it's, there it's is value too. And if you don't, and, and if not, it means you might not have done enough research and you broke something. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, we keep cutting Ken off. What were you going to say, Ken? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I think it's the opposite. No, no, I was just saying, uh, our, well, you know, like even how GitHub does it, because they do uh, send to specific APM endpoints a message for revocation, you know, they, they worked closely with a, you know, at least originally a handful of vendors. I, I don't know. I know. I do believe they have some custom, some level of custom secret scanning. But my point is, is like, it's not a one size and also not everybody uses GitHub. So it's not like a, you know, a one-stop shop. Also like, uh, yes, maybe uh, this company over here is dedicated to doing that, but they don't have like the entire, uh, all the ecosystem bits that you need. And maybe you just want to go to one because procurement's always easier through one vendor. So totally. I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's good to have, yeah, to just, you already have like a good ecosystem, just build on something that is naturally already, you're seeing there's product market fit for, mm -hmm. because people are paying money for that kind of service. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people were already using SEMGRUP to find secrets. Um, so we, and people, I, you know, I would agree with you. People generally want to have uh, one vendor that does more things well. And I think, unfortunately, the case is that in a lot of cases does not happen. Uh, and so I understand why there's point solutions and like, you know, specialized vendors that do like one thing super well. But um, if you're already a SEMGRUP customer, we're already scanning all this stuff. Uh, and it's gonna be easier to use the suite of, of products that are all like designed to work together. Um, mm -hmm. Hashtag by SEMGRUP. But like, I think that that is kind <laughs> of like, that's the, that's the value prop, right? Is it's like, it's not, the secrets product on its own. It's like the secrets product is part of a platform. Part part of everything else. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so along those lines, right? Personally and then also professionally, like what is it that you're looking at next, right? Like what is it that you're excited about, right? Um either, right? Like obviously the secret stuff is in beta now. That's coming down the pipe. Um, but there, is there anything else like on the personal side that has you excited for, you know, the next six to 12 months? Um, personal side. I mean, I don't really have a, anything else like planned in terms of like conference talks or like anything like that. Um, I'm just been kind of moving back and forth between like LA and New York, which has been really fun on the personal side, getting mm -hmm. to kind of experience the best of both there. Uh, but yeah. Are you, are, can you clarify that? Are you saying that you're just, are you just traveling to like, you know, kind of like I do, I go to Austin a lot because uh, that's like where a good you know, portion of my team's at, but, uh, or are you saying you're literally like living in both places? Yeah, like my girlfriend and I, the last like couple of years, we've been doing like chunks of time in each where we like don't have a, a second residence. It's like fully moving um, like from it, the, the places are all furnished, but like so we've just been like bringing checked bags and stuff. But um, yeah, like we're in New York right now for six months. 
before that we were in LA for like eight months before that was New York for six months. So the last like couple of years, we've just been doing like half and half roughly. That is, which has been fun. what's that like? Is it fun? Are you, it is actually fun to like experience short period. I can imagine why though, because you get to like, kind of enjoy, it's kind of like if you're somewhere for very long, you know, you kind of, all the stuff that gets the paper cuts, the stuff that gets annoying does add up. But if you're only there for a few months, I can see how it's like, nah, you know, just only the good stuff. And then you move on. Yeah. I mean, New York is just so fun. Like there's so much stuff going on and it's so dense and just like being able to get around with the subway is so nice. Um, but then on the flip side, like we've been spending the winters in LA, which obviously like <laughs> beats new york winter in terms of weather and we're both from california and so it's a lot easier to like see friends and go to important life events and that kind of stuff so it is it is really nice to, to have time in in california as well cool nice yeah uh, yeah eric uh on the on slack said that you should just stay in new york city and do karaoke at wogies i don't know if i'm saying that right weekly oh yeah right. uh yeah, I was didn't do karaoke with him, but did hang, hang out with him at Wogies. <laughs> Sweet. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've always, like, wondered how that would be to, you know, migrate. Like, I had a you know, friend recently that was going through that was doing almost van life, right? Like, had a, a camper, and him and his partner had been just on the road for the past three, four months, and that's it, right? Like, working that's out of his camper. for me. That's too much moving. Yeah, yeah. Like just the uncertainty of like, oh, is the internet going to work? Are we going to like have a place to go? Like, I feel like there's too much like planning just to make sure that like things that need to happen, happen. Whereas if you do six months and you are living somewhere that's furnished and you have, uh, you know, a few checked bags, it's like, it's not that much of a hassle. I mean, we spend mm -hmm. some time putting stuff in storage in LA you know, obviously spend some time packing. But once we get here, I mean, you need to order some stuff on Amazon just to kind of like fill out whatever you need. But at least for us, like you're kind of set like after a few days, like it's not a super disruptive experience. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel like if I was in a van, I'd always be like on the go, um, which, you know, if someone likes doing that sounds kind of fun, but I don't know that I'd want to do it while working. Like, I think yeah. it would be too stressful for me to be like, oh, what what if I, like, don't have the stuff that I need to do to, like, do my job? Whereas here, like, I'm just at a desk with a computer. Like, it's, yeah, I have what I need. It's fine. Well, and I mean, I think part of uh, part of his and like, hey, you know, we could bring Eric on at some point and talk to him. I, I mean, he may have been actually been on the podcast at some point, but um I think part of his ability to do that recently has been he uses Starlink, right? Like rural right? Being mm -hmm. able to actually make the calls and things like that. I think that alleviated a lot of this, like, oh, I have to be in a location and make sure that I have Wi-Fi and everything set up. Um, but between like Starlink and some of the other like cell providers, um, he's been able to to piece it together and make it work. But I, I'm sure it's st stressful, right? Because I, I know how it is, right? When Ken and I are trying to do the podcast and like my, and Comcast decides to get in the way, right? Like that's happened before. And yeah, it, like it, it, it just ruins your day. You're like, ah, crap, like I'm done. Right. That's it. I'm out. So, um, but that's cool. Right. Like I, I, I mean, I'd be interested to see how, how that flows. It's just, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's cool, right? Yeah. Um, you... So, oh yeah, go ahead, Ken. No, I was going to ask. So, you're you're going to be here next week. Are you going to have other yeah. like uh, community kind of leader folks with you? I assume, or maybe not. Maybe that's incorrect. Um, I mean, we we have a well, we have a handful of people that are going to be at AppSec. Uh, DC, both at the party that I sent the link out for, and as well as like at the event in terms of just the booth. And then we also have people speaking. Um, so there's somebody named Kurt uh, who's giving a talk, and then Tanya, who you mentioned earlier and is like very well known. <laughs> uh, Kurt and Tanya are both giving. They're they're two separate talks, but um, yeah, they're they're both speaking at at OAS DC. Cool. Well, uh, so, okay. You know, that was, uh, you know, personally, wh what about professionally, right? Like, you know, as you look at the industry, as you look at things, and I know we're about you know, out of time, but um, as you look at the industry, what is it that, you know, what is it that excites you about the next, you know, six to 12 months? What is it that you're looking forward to? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's really exciting is there's been a lot of people over the last couple of years uh, that have started companies, people that I really respected as security practitioners that have felt pains that a lot of other companies have, have felt starting companies. And I'm really excited to see where those are at in like another one to two to three years. Because I think that historically, we've had a lot of like really bad vendors. And, you know, maybe some of the, these people I'm talking about will have, be bad vendors too, but <laughs> hopefully not. Because um, I do feel like there's a lot of people that like understand what modern security teams need and they're trying to build something for them. And that was definitely a pain that I felt at Segment. I felt like a lot of the vendors when we do evals is like, you are not built for a 500 person company or 300 person company that's using the modern development practices and uh, i know they're a competitor to, to segment but like when i evaluated snick in 2018 they were so much better than like fortify and you know like black duck and like the other competitors in the space and i remember uh like check marks like they wanted me to install like some window shit and i was like no this is like not yeah. how this works like i'm not installing any i don't even have windows um and so i do have think a full talk on this <laughs> yeah it's like i think that we need more vendors that uh can work well with modern security organizations and you know i think that there are some that exist currently but i think that a lot of the stuff that's out there now is is meant for kind of a different era of company yeah i have a well, slide i want to i'm trying to pull up here but it basically shows that so in, in 25 years, like it shows the timelines of when when things were implemented. I gave this talk like recently. Actually, I have the slide I'm about to be able to share it. But basically, right around 2013, uh, when Brakeman sort of started to actually make a name, uh, dependency check came out, which meant then that the A9 uh, OWASP category of uh, using uh, known vulnerable components uh, that timeline was like really impactful for for at least some level of recognizing um, newer tech stack stuff 
And also like just the fact that like dependencies matter and there's security vulnerabilities there. But, and here it is, but what I noticed was like, realistically around 2019, people started to kind of build some companies that were trying to be, that were marketed more towards uh, developers, but still were like security tools, essentially at the end of the day, built for security people. But anyways, you can kind of see like, the 2011 to 2017 starts to introduce some new ideas into like, you know, um, like I said, now we're looking at Ruby on Rails, we're looking at JavaScript, there's Sneak gets launched for it's like, you know, it's it's gonna end up targeting developers and then SEMgrep in 2019. And so then SEMgrep and CodeQL kind of have their, their, uh, their, they're kind of moving more towards integrating truly into a developer kind of workflow, meaning like an, uh, an SCM of some kind. Um, but in 25 years from, you know, uh, we'll say 1998 till now, that's about been what happened. We started with like AppScan in 98, WebInspect in 2000. Most of the SaaS stuff started getting most of its traction or at least started being launched back in 05. A lot of these companies, or actually 02, sorry, uh, put this in the wrong uh, category there, but in any case, um, yeah, just like pretty, pretty weird how, how everything's gone. Most of these companies, like, uh, I don't know, check marks is a good example. I forget, I think AppScan and web inspector, another one where they've literally gone through three or four different, um, big companies they've been purchased by like that many acquisitions. Yeah. And so this has been, I guess what I'm trying to say is this has been AppSec scanning evolution. And that's, man, I don't know, like not, not the, yeah. uh, anyways, well, now we're going over time. I, yeah, we do. I, I mean, my, my thought on that was the, like the acquisitions seem to hurt the ability to actually, uh, react yeah. to the market. Right. That it's like, so it get a, it, it gets acquired by a huge conglomerate, a huge tech company. And I understand they have this like investment mentality that they're going to take and turn and make money off that product, like what they invested in. But part of that is they, you know, they scale down what, you know, Leaf and his team is doing, you know, to make a product so dynamic. Um, and I, I mean, you know, part of that is like whatever maturity is that they're trying to build in into it, the large company mindset. Like, I think there's a number of different things that we could talk about as far as what that, like the results of that or the reasons behind it. Um, but it does leave space for new companies to pop up and actually innovation to occur. So uh, it's tough. I mean, like even with a company like Twilio, which is a tech company, not a PE company that's trying to just trim it down, improve yeah. the margins and like resell it. Like it's hard to combine multiple companies that were never built to work together. I mean, it took us probably six months before we could even slack uh, somebody from from Twilio post acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not surprised that when you cobble together a bunch of different acquisitions, it's, it's hard to make it feel cohesive. I mean, there was still stuff that uh, like they were trying to get combined with SendGrid, which they bought a year before us. Um, like Twilio bought SendGrid uh, before they bought uh, Segment. Um, and it's just really hard. I mean, it's like completely different tech stacks, completely different cultures, even combining two apps that seem like they should be able to be combined. Like we were both using G Suite and it was 
kind of a mess to get like the two G suites combined. And, you know, that's one where it's like, it feels like Google should have like a better system in place here. But like we had to hire third party contractors to like write all these crazy scripts to, you know, try to make the transition smooth. And there was like still stuff that got like totally borked. And so yeah. I, yeah, it's never as easy as it seems. That's just like <laughs> yeah. going back to that theme, like you, you would expect it to be easy to combine these two things. And it's, it's not like Slack yeah. is a perfect example. It's like, there's so many integrations that are tied into Slack that if you were to combine two companies, Slacks, uh, like try to get rid of one, not just combine them into an enterprise grid. It, it, it would be so hard. There's so many things that send data to Slack or pull data from Slack or whatever um that it's crazy and that's just one app that's not even your app that's a yeah. third-party app that is in theory designed to work with acquisitions let alone trying to combine like you know the login like combining the login across like SendGrid, twilio and segment is was a huge undertaking absolutely yep. massive yep yep no easy fix right like yeah it's 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 a yeah so i mean so we see this reasons why it happens. Um, and, you know, we, we might have to do another episode just on that, right? Just talk through what that actually is. I have had conversations where we've shared it on this. I've shared a couple of those conversations on this podcast where people just flat out got whole really cool, innovative ideas on their products killed by through the process of like acquisitions where, yeah, someone came in and they're like, yeah, no, this is really cool. Nice. But guess what? It costs us too much of my time and money. And like we... We're condensing and unifying goals and teams and no, that's getting killed off. And so anyway, it's like 25 yeah. years. Sem, Sem Grip, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say on this, this note. My biggest gripe with the 25 years of evolution is that it's, it never keeps up with the pace of adoption by engineers. It will, it will never, not naturally, you know, naturally it won't with the exception. I think one, one thing that's really nice with Sem Grip is that you cover so many different languages. So it's very easy to, you know, start writing rules or building community rule or using community rules or, you know, paying for the engine and using uh, SEMGREP rules um, to yeah. uh, to cover those new that, those new technologies that get adopted. So, yeah, yeah you well, heard I, it here first. SEMGREP yeah. completely future-proof according to Ken. <laughs> great, great value. Great value. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it goes back to this idea of like what Ken's getting at here is like getting out of the way as a security tool, right? Letting developers choose how they use it rather than trying to dictate to them how how it should go. Um, and Not kind you know, of, but sign more process, so just yeah. kind of, but to be clear, like, no, what I really mean is if you pay a bunch of money for check marks or you pay a bunch of money for sneak or whatever, and you only get three out of the new, there's seven new things that came out and, and are being adopted in your org, like you're you're completely lost. You don't have a tool for it. That's what I really mean, right? That's okay. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, as a, so as a practitioner, if I have something that's flexible, I guess what I'm trying to say is the last 25 years have been very rigid. I think we need to go to, towards a world where things are very, very flexible. I think SEMGREP's one early attempt at that is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And flexibility yeah. is really going to be the name of the game for our industry is my personal take on everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to ask developers to own all the security stuff and be able to make security decisions and shift left and, you know, whatever, it's like you need stuff that they can use and that's like relatively easy for them to use because 
we've added so many things to what a developer needs to do. It's like, you need to understand infrastructure. You need to understand security. You need to understand APM. You need to understand databases. Like if any of those things is too hard, the developers are naturally not going to do a very good job at it. And it's not because they're dumb or anything like that. It's just that they have so many responsibilities that being a journeyman at these five different things that are all like not super similar to each other is pretty hard um and so that's you know i think that that's where the a lot of these industries that are like software engineering adjacent need to go is like how do we make this stuff as easy as possible for developers to make the right decisions autonomously yep Good. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a good thought to uh, to go ahead and close out the episode on. Um, uh, like, yeah, I didn't want to spoil it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a good place to 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 put a bow on it. Um, Leaf, we appreciate you coming on again. Right. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll have to not not wait three years for the next uh, follow up, <laughs> um, especially as we see what else is coming out of SEMGREP and you know what else you've got going on. Um, so. Uh, yeah, keep in touch. And Ken, any other final thoughts before we close today out? Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy person and uh, appreciate you coming on here and allowing us to pick your brain and share your story and, you know, let the listeners uh, hear it as well. And thank you to listeners. Appreciate you having me on here and really looking forward to catching up with you and anyone else that's around for DC. Yeah, me too. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining today. Um, join us on Slack, and yeah, if you've got additional questions, you know, we'll we'll filter them through. And yeah, otherwise, we'll see everybody on Friday, hopefully, on the the live panel. Um, get your questions in for that before, uh, and watch for guests as well. All right. Thanks everybody.